One of the core functions of cities is to provide services to its citizens. Whether it's streets, police and fire protection, or parks and recreational opportunities, city planners have a responsibility to ensure that these facilities are in the locations where people need them most. But oftentimes, planners use outdated metrics from historical plans or rely on national standards that are often not reflective of local needs. In today's episode, we will discuss how mobility data can help you develop service area metrics for your city and help answer this important question when it comes to city facilities. Who do you serve? I'm Alex Huffman, and this is City Planning Matters. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of City Planning Matters. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing a topic about service area boundaries, answering the question, who do you serve? Um, and, and the reason that I think it's really important to discuss services, especially right now, is because with the pandemic, we saw how disparate uh, neighborhoods had access and differing levels of access to city services. So just as a really practical matter, you know, did you have access to city health care uh, or did you have access to open space? And it really uh, opened the door for discussions related to services and whether or not as cities and communities, we are providing the same level of access to different services. And as I discussed in the introduction, this is really important just because at its core, city's uh, core function is to provide services to its citizens. And those services can be things like planning services. We can provide permitting um, activities. We can also then look at recreational opportunities, police and fire coverage, and just very basic things. But that is the role of cities and why we have them to begin with is to provide services. That's why we tax. And so at its very core function, this is why governments exist. And so to start this conversation, the first place that we should probably discuss or the first thing we should probably discuss is what are service area boundaries? And so for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, when we look at planning long range from a capital planning lens, uh, one of the things that we use in order to um, make sure that we have adequate public facilities are service area boundaries. And service area boundaries are metrics, so they can be reflective of a certain mile radius, or they can be based on things like amount of square feet per, per citizen or dwelling unit in a particular uh, area. And these are usually pretty regional specific. Uh, how one city determines its level of service is going to be completely different uh, than uh, another city. Uh, and so the way that they're developed is usually one of two ways. So they're developed either by plan or by existing conditions. And so when we talk about by plan, um, the way that they could be developed is maybe your city did a park and recreational uh, study, or maybe they did a PD study or a fire study. And usually these plans are focused on helping to support a specific outcome. 
And like I mentioned, it might be, you know, having uh, a certain amount of square feet per per citizen uh, when trying to determine the right level of, of pools in your city. Or on a more practical matter, it could be like your fire department trying to meet a certain ISO rating. Uh, and so they have specific service area metrics to help support that. And I'll use an example of how that very practically matters. Uh, the other way is by existing condition. And so in that example, it might be looking at just your current level of service. And so if you, for example, examined your existing locations of your police stations, looking at them on a map and mapping them out and using your GIS to do a buffer, you may see that they're already spaced out at two square miles. And so moving forward, that would be a really good metric for your city to use because that's appearing to be what the existing condition standard is. And so the reason that this is important is that in some instances, it's to support a certain quality of life. So, you know, you're trying to make your city attractive. Uh, and so you use service area metrics to make your city attractive for people to want to live there or move there. In other instances, it's to support a very functional need. And so going back to this example of the fire department, so our city in El Paso, we use uh, a, a certain service area metric uh, in order to help us achieve the highest level ISO rating. And the benefit of trying to achieve this ISO rating for our citizens is that it reduces insurance costs for homeowners and renters. And so in that case, that's a very practical thing. It makes a lot of sense that we're trying to hit this metric that was developed by the city because it has a very real and tangible benefit to our, to our population. But then, like I mentioned, then there's other um, you know, considerations, and that's more of a quality of life one. And so maybe you're trying to make your uh, parks and recreation opportunities in your city uh, a certain level, and doing so makes your city attractive to you know people who maybe are looking to move somewhere. And they're like, wow, you know, your city has really great uh, outdoor trails, or maybe it has, you know, really great museums. And because you've developed these service area metrics to help support that, people maybe want to move to your city, or maybe it helps retain your population. Or, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, recent trends with businesses, uh, and, you know, maybe it's going to be a little bit different coming out of the pandemic, because maybe certain businesses are looking to uh, function, you know, more remotely, but, you know, leading up to the pandemic, quality of life was really important to businesses when they were looking to relocate. And so what types of amenities are going to be available to their employees? And so they're picking cities where as a quality of life, uh, their employees are going to have uh, a really good life and it's going to make them want to choose to work at a particular company. Or it's going to help your citizens, your existing citizens want to invest in their homes, or maybe it's going to make them want to open up a business. And so in that case, it's really a economic development tool. Uh, and so, you know, the, the reason that this is really something that cities should be mindful of is because 
maybe if they understand the service area metrics and that they're seeing some of the tangible benefits that maybe they wouldn't be as upset about paying their taxes if they can see the benefit of where their tax dollars are going in a very tangible way or in the example of the fire department in a financial way and so this is really the rationale for why we have these boundaries and why they matter but what I want to talk about now is how cities get them wrong. So, uh, you know, as cities, we a lot of times have good intentions. I don't think that, uh, generally speaking, we have uh, a an ulterior motive that's negative or that's harmful uh, in in mind when we're doing things. But sometimes we do things wrong, and so how do we do them wrong? Well. Uh, I think that there are really maybe three different ways uh, that cities can get their service area metrics wrong. So first is that they aren't realistic. Uh, so maybe just from a financial perspective, the metrics that you're using are too rich for your tax rate. So if you're saying on one hand, like I want to have a regional park every mile, that's really great for quality of life. But can your tax base actually support that? If you're paying a lot of money for public safety, then you probably can't pay a lot for quality of life. And so when you develop these service area metrics, you really need to be thinking about and balancing the financial impact of adopting a certain service area boundary. And so balance the cost of maintenance with the cost that's going to be you know, given and passed on to your citizenry. The second way that cities can go wrong with their service area metrics is that they don't reflect citizen desires. And so as an example, is your uh, service area metric calling for a lot of parks, but your citizens don't use the ones you have? Maybe they want instead more access to like natural open space. That's something that, you know, in the Southwest is maybe, um, you know, much more of a, an issue just because we don't have a lot of water. And so, you know, do we need to be mindful of, of, you know, making sure that our service area metrics are reflective of citizen wants or needs? Uh, another example is maybe, you know, and we saw this quite a bit it, as a result of, you know, what happened uh, after the events of, of George Floyd, but you know, some cities were questioning the amount of money that's being spent on police services. And so if your citizenry doesn't want a specific type of service, but then your service area metrics are calling for a lot of money to be spent in them, that's another way uh, that you can do it wrong. And then uh, the last way that cities can do it wrong, and I was thinking of how to describe this one, uh, and I think the best way truthfully to describe it is that sometimes your metrics are a result of laziness. So as I mentioned, cities don't really do things intentionally, I think, to be harmful to citizens, but sometimes uh, cities can be lazy. And so what do I mean when I say that? Uh, I think a really good example of this, and I think that you know it's something that we're all guilty of, is that uh, cities love to copy each other. So if any of you who are listening have ever done maybe like a code amendment or have been looking at, you know, a certain type of standard, uh, one of the first things I think that we all do is that we look and see what su such and such city is doing. And 
we all have our list of cities in our respective communities, maybe the ones that we look up to or that the ones that we know our city council members or our city planning commission members are going to say, well, did you look and see what such and such city is doing? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. And so uh, if we are looking at what other cities are doing from a code perspective, I think that then from a service area perspective, we probably do the same thing. And so, you know, we love to compare ourselves to like in Texas, the other big six or the other big five, because we're one of the big six cities in Texas. And so the question comes up, well, you know, what is Dallas doing? Or what is Austin doing? And we look at the service area boundaries, maybe that these types of cities that we compare ourselves to are doing as a measuring stick of like what we should be doing. Um, but as I mentioned, each city is different. And so does it make sense that we look at from a service area perspective, the, the metrics of other cities? And so an example of this, right, might be this standard of quarter mile buffers for parks and that each neighborhood should be within walking distance of a park. And by no means am I saying that this is a bad thing, right? I think if we had all the money in the world, we'd love to be able to provide parks every quarter of a mile. And probably, you know, even closer if we could, we'd love to provide, you know, uh, retail options and schools that are within walking distance. But again, can your tax base support these types of things? And so using this as an example, I just want to show that even though this, you know, this is a standard, I think that a lot of people probably use is to make sure that, you know, we have a park amenity within a quarter mile of every residential neighborhood. Maybe it doesn't make sense for your neighborhood or for your city. And so what I want to do after we come back from the break is to discuss how we can use mobility data uh, to take a data-informed approach to help you develop more practical and realistic service metrics for your city and help to answer the question, who do you serve? All right, everyone, welcome back from the break. So just a quick recap. Uh, before the break, what we discussed was, you know, what are service area boundaries? Why are they important? Uh, how do we develop them? And then what are some of the issues with the current way that most cities develop service area boundaries? And so what I want to talk about now is how we can use mobility data to help us develop much more realistic and then also hopefully much more accurate from a local context service area boundaries. And so just to be really quick and do a refresher on what mobility data is, is that mobility data can be thought of as origin destination pairs. So there's like a place where a trip starts and a place where a trip ends and together they form a pair and that that can show the home location of a user of a user of a particular you know device. And the device is, you know, some type of, um, you know, mobile phone or an iPad or something like that. And so it's showing the origin and destination to a particular point of interest. So a business, a park, a school facility, anything like that, that is gathered from cell phone data. And so what can this show us? Well, in a very practical manner, it can show us things like where people live, uh, also where they work, 
where else they go? What other businesses do they go to? What other you know locations around your city do they go to? How far do they travel? Maybe what country do they live in? That's something that you know in El Paso we sometimes are very curious about because we're so close to the Mexico border. So knowing that we have devices that come from Mexico and go to different city services or different city businesses is a really um, you know interesting uh, thing to examine. And I don't really want to get into the specifics of how this is determined, but I'll just give you a general idea of how we know these different types of insights. So most of the time they're generalizations. And so we make assumptions about uh, user behavior, uh, which then, you know, tells us, for example, where people live. And so the way that a, a mobile device um, data provider, like the one that we had access to for a while was a company called SafeGraph. And the way that they determine the location of where someone's home is, is that they look at where a device's particular location is between the hours of like 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. And if it stays in the same location during that entire time, it is what they call bucketed in a location to say that that's where that person's home is because probably they were sleeping there overnight. Alternatively, they can say that this is where a particular person works because between the hours of, say, 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., this device stayed in the same location, and therefore we assume this is where this person works. And that then these same devices, when they go to other locations for shorter periods of time, they will say that, you know, this is a destination that they went to. They went to this restaurant or they went to this particular business. And that's how more or less they, uh, you know, are able to provide these types of insights. And so on a very practical level, uh, using this information can tell us in terms of city services, how far people currently travel to go to different, different, different city facilities. And so, uh, I use this information where basically what I did was I collected all of the different points of interest that were city service related and categorized them. So I put them into like parks or recreation centers, senior centers, um, trying to think of what other ones, libraries is another example. And from that, I was able to get insights into how far people are traveling to go to these different facilities over a certain period of time. And so if you're doing this analysis, I would really suggest that you look at several seasons. Um, you know, they can give you the data monthly. Um, I think seasons are probably really good insights. You don't need to necessarily do it monthly, but I also wouldn't recommend that you do it like once per year, because as an example, if you use data from 2020, it's going to be very skewed, especially if your city services were closed. And so um, they may not be showing you data that's necessarily reflective of what uh, the ground truth, what is in reality. And so, um, you know, I would just use that as a matter of caution. If you're doing this analysis, just make sure that you're getting a broad representative sample when you start analyzing the data. And so doing this and taking this particular approach can help us to develop much more local specific travel boundaries. And so like, let's say that you've done this, you've gathered all the data, you have, you know, all the, the different data points for your different facilities, you've done it over several seasons and you have, you know, for each 
different facility type and then each within that type then location you have all of your different um, city locations determined so how do you interpret this data well i think that there's probably three different ways to take a look at it and i'll discuss each of them here um, uh, upcoming but i think the important thing is, is that again word of caution really you know speak to others especially you know if you're developing this for your your city's leadership your city manager your city's mayor um, and really get an understanding of like what direction do they want to move their services and do they want to maintain do they want to cut level of service uh, do they want to improve level of service and that's going to really tell you uh, what metric is the best one to use to interpret the data and so again, there's really three ways I've thought about that can help you, um, you know, determine maybe what your service area metrics should be for your particular city. First one is the mean or the median. Um, I'm using those terms interchangeably, knowing that they are two different things, but uh, you can use either the mean or the median to say that like on average or typically, this is how far people are traveling to go to the specific facility type. And in this instance, this would be maybe a way to maintain your level of service because it's showing existing conditions in your city. Um, and so as an example, if your services are situated in such a way um, that people are having to drive, keeping them at the median is going to ensure in the future that people are driving to city services. And maybe that's not your objective. So then don't use the mean or the median. Another way to interpret the data and I think is a really good way to really help put into context what the mean or the median is showing is to use a box and whisker plot. I really like it. It's a really weird type of data visualization. If you don't know what a box and whisker plot is, look it up. It's actually, it's pretty neat. And so what it does is that it shows you the range of points, which is the quote whisker. And so it will show you, you know, the, the largest data point and the lowest data point within a certain level of measure. So like a specific facility, it will show you over a period of time, the furthest distance that people traveled and the shortest distance people traveled. And that's the whisker. And then the box plot is then removing those outliers and telling you what the 25th percentile is and then the 75th percentile is. And then within the middle of that box is going to be the mean or the median. And so um, the benefit is, is that using the box and whisker plot shows you your outliers, plus then it shows how clustered the data points are based on the 25th and the 75th percentiles are to the mean distance that people are traveling. And so it really gives a little bit more context into if you say, for example, well, the, the, the mean distance that people traveled to go to libraries was 2.5 miles, it will show you more or less than how representative that, that average is of all the true data points. And I really like this one. Um, and so as an example, if you use the box and whisker, you could use say the 25th percentile and say that if we use this as our service area metric, that uh, you know 75% of facilities would meet this standard. And this may be a way to maybe set maybe better um, standards without doing anything too drastic uh, because this is showing a, again, a local context type of metric that most of your facilities are currently meeting, which wouldn't result in having to necessarily 
raise taxes, to improve the level of service. And then the last metric that, that we can use is then the lowest point. So in this case, say, for example, your city really wants to improve services for parks. If you could look at, you know, and use this mobility data to say that, you know, the lowest data point uh, that we collected over a period of time, the average is one mile. And we want to make all of our parks accessible within our city. Then you could say, okay, we're going to use the one mile metric because based on current mobility trends, the, the shortest distance that people travel is one mile. And we want to capture every single facility in our city. We want this to become the new standard. We want to meet this everywhere in the city. Then one mile could be your metric. And so again, developing these metrics uh, you know, is going to be really specific to your local context, but then is also based in reality because it's showing you what your citizenry in your city are actually, you know, willing to travel to go to city services. And so what other types of information can you gain uh, from doing this type of analysis? Well, you can get a lot of demographic data and you might be wondering, well, like, how is that possible? Well, we can see with the mobility data, the home block group location. And so what you could do is you could set up a table that, you know, you could say, okay, I want to see educational attainment, the income, the race and the ethnicity of people who live within this particular block group. And you could put them into categories, you could put them into averages and say that, you know, the average educational attainment of block group such and such is 20, you know, 25% of people have bachelor's degrees or something like that. And you could do that for every single block group. And then you could say that on average, people who go to senior centers, 25% or 20% of people have a bachelor's degree. They are representative of people with this particular median household income. And you can start to get a lot of demographic information that can give you these insights into, you know, who do you serve? And so uh, knowing this can help us to provide uh, prioritize certain new facilities. So like, say, for example, you want to develop new service area metrics and your city is looking at, you know, uh, where should we provide our next library? Well, now you have your service area metric, however you determined it, and you can identify the gaps in service. Or you can alternatively use this information to identify, you know, maybe a facility that can be closed because based on the demographic information of the people who use it, that maybe, you know, in 20 years, there won't be seniors living in a particular neighborhood. Uh, and so as a result, maybe this is one that, uh, you know, you could probably realistically close without really impacting service. And so this is where using the data and demographic information can really help cities make you know, really challenging decisions when it comes to the delivery of service. And so I really hope that uh, today you really enjoyed this episode and looking at how you can use mobility data to help develop more realistic service area boundaries and to help answer the question, who do you serve? Again, I'm Alex Huffman and this is City Planning Matters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen and rate the podcast so we can continue to improve the content of each episode for our listeners. I'm Alex Huffman, 
and this is Planning Matters. 